He was a stranger in a strange land with dreams of bringing pro wrestling to Japan. What could possibly go wrong? It's the story of Sorokichi Matsuda. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You heard the intro, you heard the music, you know what you are getting into, or at least I hope you do. Welcome to Pro Wrestling History Nerds. My name is Nick Gossert. I am a professional wrestling promoter. I am a professional wrestling booker, occasionally a referee, occasionally a ring announcer. But enough about me. I am here with the Dr. Doom to my uh, Doom bot. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Shout out to our one listener in Latvia. Welcome, greetings, and salutations. I am the Mr. Peabody to your Sherman on this historical pro wrestling excavation. That sounds about right, because yes. we are going deep into the, uh, the history books again. We've been kind of dancing around the modern era, talking about martial arts as pro wrestling, MMA as pro wrestling, when pro wrestling tries to be MMA. And that's been a fun little adventure, but I like going back in time. I like cracking open the old newspapers, going through the microfiche, visiting the library, digging up buried treasure, if you will. And we're going back to the 1800s. But to go a little bit side questy with uh, what you just said, uh, it is Latvia, not Latveria. Dr. Doom isn't a real person. And if he was, I would love it if he would hang out with us, be a guest. But yeah, it is funny. We have been looking at the numbers and we're so appreciative of everybody who listens to our show, everybody who downloads at least a couple of these bad boys. Hopefully you are enjoying the journey as much as we are. And it's funny seeing listeners popping up in places like Russia, Latvia, Portugal. We're super over in the UK, old chap. Yeah, uh, we are getting some good listeners in the, uh, the the UK district, old merry old England. And I, I give a lot of credit to, of that to uh, Sarah Cox, uh, Grappling With History. She runs an amazing blog. Capital. I, I do have an interview with her that will come out at some point. The English scene, the English history scene is as bananas, if not more so than what we're doing here in the United States, or at least what we used to do here in the United States, grappling with history, check out her history blog. She tells some crazy goddamn stories and I love everything she does. And hopefully she feels the same about us. But right now we are gonna talk about a name. We're gonna talk about somebody that you have heard in the background of several episodes, uh, a B player, if you will, but somebody who has such a crazy story of their own that I had to tell it. I had to push them to the forefront because as insignificant or background character or B-level villain as he was in other people's biographies, Sorokichi Matsuda was a pioneer, was a trailblazer, was an amazing person with an amazing story, and we're gonna be telling that today. And yeah, you might remember that name if you listen to our William Muldoon episodes because he was in the ring or on the mat or on the carpet, depending on the, the venue with him several times. He had two famous matches against Evan Strangler Lewis. They didn't go his way. They are well known, not necessarily for the reasons he would like, but what can you do? That is history for you. And speaking of history, one thing I do want to cover is if you're an expert, if you are sitting at home writing the definitive biography of Sorokichi Matsuda, and you hear me say, hey, I don't, you hear me say something, and you hear me tell a story or reference a match or a situation, and you go, hey, dum-dum, that's not how I heard it, or that's not how I read about it over here, and that's the thing with professional wrestling history, is there's not that definitive 
history. There's not the shoot interviews from guys back in these days. Everything is pieced together through oral traditions or through newspaper clippings, often in a kayfabe presentation of a worked match, or as we like to call it around here, a, a hippodrome. So it's sometimes difficult to put together an objective truth, but that's the thing about history. That's the thing about life. As soon as you start telling the story, you have an agenda to tell a tale, a myth, a legend, something with three acts, a climax and resolution. Life, real life, becomes fiction the second you start telling the story. So yeah, sometimes we do omit things. Like with the Theobald Bauer story, we didn't really get into the is he or was he not the original masked wrestler in France because there's enough conjecture both ways. It didn't matter, it bogged down the story. Will we revisit it someday? Absolutely. But we're just trying to tell one very good story about someone's life in about an hour, doing the best we can with the source material that we have to work with. So thanks for joining us on these journeys. Hopefully you like what we're doing because we're gonna keep doing it for some time. And now we get to the man himself, the man who grappled some of the best names of the late 1800s, but who was he? What were his motivations? How did he get here? This guy had an absolutely crazy life. He was born Kajiro Matsuda in 1859 or 1862, depending on the source you look at, in the prefecture of Fukuya in Japan. In his early years, he trained in sumo, and depending on which version of the story you believe, he was quite good at it or he really was mediocre, but was always showing up to the competitions, kind of like uh, for jujitsu tournaments. He's that guy who shows up to every single uh, meet at the, uh, you know, the blue belt competition. He's been a blue belt for 15 years, gets tapped in the first match, but he's there every weekend, bless his warrior heart. Yeah, it's hard to beat the uh, superior ju uh, sumo practitioner when you're a man of Matsuda's size, though. I would imagine that's not really an optimal build for that sort of combat sport. I mean, how, how, how big are we talking about? He was a small man, and that's going to be a leitmotif in his life, in his career of being an undersized competitor, going up against bigger men in open weight matches. And anybody who watched early MMA knows that that can be an absolute shit show unless you are the best in the world or have tricks up your sleeve that no one has ever seen. Yeah, he, he jobbed to them all in an era when carnies didn't keep records. The, the, the information is so sparse at, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, but we know that he was in there with the greats of his era, with, whether you're talking about the solid man, whether you're talking about the strangler. He jobbed to them all, daddy. He showed the true samurai warrior spirit that would come to embody the, the, the pride fighters from Japan that really didn't win a lot of fights in, you know, 100 plus years later. And it really, it's really an epic tale of the the person and the martial artist and the the, the worker not just you know the, his story in his run but his, the, his, like you said his life story is incredible and whether he was a great sumo wrestler or that was just you know making it up to the press because you couldn't verify it in the pre-internet days 
He competed in sumo under the name Torikichi. The use of wrestling names in sumo date back to the 1600s as a way to make them sound more like intimidating attractions and to protect the privacy of the actual wrestlers and their families. The combination of names became bastardized and mispronounced in America when he came over here as Mitsada Korugi Sorokichi. Torikichi became Sorokichi, and often in newspapers, Matsuda became Matsada, Masuda, but to most friends and colleagues, he was known as Matt or the Jap. And it is funny to look at sumo wrestlers taking on gimmick names back in those days, uh, very similar to a certain business we work in today. Yes, I've heard there's a, there's a term for, for fighting uh, 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 expositions that aren't necessarily on the up and up. What is that word? You know, ah, yes. Hippodrome! Yes, yes. I was, of course, swallowing a tasty beverage, so I didn't join in on that, but you get the point. You know where we're going on this. And researching this man and his life and career is a difficult task because there is so very little personal information about him. He seemed to be well-liked and well-respected by his peers, but there was never much said by the man himself to the press. You know, this was an era where nobody did a shoot interview. Uh, it seems like his English was very limited, so nobody really went to him for uh, for good quotes. He didn't have students. The tale was really told second, third hand about who he was and how he did. And it's also difficult because nearly every article I found was dripping with the casual, brutal racism of the late 1800s. With the casual, brutal racism of the late 1800s, that's why a lot of the articles I'm not going to go deep into quotations. I'm not going to read them because I'm not some edgy open mic comic who's just looking for an excuse to use hurtful language towards a minority. We'll just say that as bad as America is with that today, it was even worse back then. Yeah, it was it was par for the course to, to have him painted in an, uh, just a really low resolution light that just, I mean, keep in mind, this is, we are closer to the Civil War than we are to Kung Fu movies, than we are to even World War II and having that level of understanding of the Japanese culture. This is pre-TV, this is pre, you know, Bruce Lee. The, the understanding of the Orient at this time in America is extremely ignorant. So you can imagine what the press clippings, the, the level of verbiage that the press clippings used. It was really, really uh, just not, not what we wanna put out there, you know? And with many of the people from this era, there will always be speculation on which matches were shoots and which matches were hippodromes, which ones were real competition, which ones were predetermined. And we'll do our best to sort that out in the highlights of his brief but intense career. Another topic of contention when discussing him is the Japanese style of wrestling, which was often listed as in multi-style matches with Matsuda involved. From everything I've read, I have to assume they were sumo rules or slightly modified sumo rules. They were badly described by the American sporting press. Both press and peers described him using headbutts to the body to move his opponents, but I sort of assume it was to an untrained eye. They were watching sumo where the 
objection is the objective is to use your body, your shoulders to nudge somebody back to get them past the line off the stage, wherever you're trying to get them. I might be wrong, but we're going to go forward with that assumption since I couldn't find many details to the contrary. So a lot of times in catch wrestling, like little mini biographies, they talk about his style using headbutts to the body, headbutts to the ribs. But I feel that was just incidental while watching a grappling style they didn't understand. Yeah, you could probably get that same description if you watched Randy Couture in MMA when you use, you know, a lot of upper body grappling styles such as Greco, such as uh, Judo, such as Sumo, where you are gripping. Basically, it's like doing Judo if you had a diaper on. You're gripping the diaper like a gi, but in those styles, the point of upper body fulcrum leverage is the head position. It doesn't matter who has superior grips. Oftentimes, who has the superior head position, to use that forehead like a crowbar and a ramrod to leverage your opponent off balance to take him the, wet, the direction you want to go, I could absolutely see that. And especially when he's at a height disadvantage against his opponents, that head position is going to be more in the ribs and the torso than it is up in the face and the neck. And for those of you who have never really watched sumo wrestling, check some out on YouTube because usually to the untrained uh, you know, person, the person who's never really looked at it, you think two fat guys shoving each other, there is a lot of technique, there's a lot of strategy to it, and it's actually pretty cool. I really went down a rabbit hole while researching this. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty interesting combat sport, even today by today's standards. Yeah, fantastic athleticism and nuance, technique and subtle things such as footwork, balance, leverage. You see the translation. They're starting to look at sumo guys for the NFL now for offensive line because of the correlation with balance manipulation and keeping your placement. But yeah, sumo is a fantastic base for martial arts and it's really interesting. So you should check it out. But Chongo digresses. Because whether he was a success or a failure, he came to the United States in 1883 for one reason alone, to learn the American style of wrestling, the American catch-as-catch-can style that had become more popular, same with the Greco-Roman style, as pushed by Theobald Bauer, William Muldoon, Clarence Whistler, etc. So he came here specifically to do this, and he learned English by attending a Christian missionary school near his home. He wasn't converting to the religion, he just wanted to be somewhere where friendly people would speak English with him and not be an asshole about it. And an article, one of the first times we really hear about this guy, an article from the New York Sun recounts a story where a group of assholes would stand in the corner and hurl racist insults at him as he went to the school. Matsuda, barely understanding what they were saying, would always smile and nod in acknowledgement of being addressed. Then one day they blocked his path and told him that he needed to sing or fight to get past them. In short order, they probably wished he would have sung for them, because he whooped their asses. Later in the night, the six men he beat up showed up at his apartment with another dozen friends, demanding Matsuda come down. Fortunately, however, Matsuda's landlord intervened by dumping a cauldron of hot water on the crowd and then threatening them with a pistol. <laughs> I think I've seen that in a musical somewhere. That's such a classic story. And I love that, that, that you know, karma's a mirror, man. You guys want to be an asshole and they got put in their place and then they come back with their friends because God forbid you got one-upped by somebody that didn't look like you. I, I'm... It's really frustrating how interwoven these aspects are with these early stories, turn of the century issues that, that a lot of the wrestlers that we take these deep dive, 
deep dives on having to deal with because what a, he's a nice guy he's trying to you know make it work across the world and he's got to deal with this shit on a constant basis and believe me what he heard from the average guy on the street was nothing compared to the fans and despite his street fighting acumen uh with his newfound catch skills his sumo schools his just willingness to fight no matter what he didn't make his official debut as a wrestler in america until january 14 1884 against catch wrestling champion edwin bb because why not go to the top shelf on your first match which should have been expected that's like some fights we've seen in Pride where a guy would make his debut against one of the best fighters in the world with the expected results. Yeah, it's just interesting because usually when that happens in Pride, it's their own countrymen that they're given the opportunity to. Here he was just pretty much fed as a lamb to the slaughter against the standard champion. They thought this would be an easy win and a good story for business. and. I don't think it turned out quite the way they anticipated. Well, you have to imagine for a ticket seller, a promoter in this era, a Japanese wrestler. This guy was the first Japanese professional wrestler. Wow. So that can be used to sell tickets, particularly back in these days where whether you build him as exotic or under fairly uh, you know, white supremacist terms, it does make it an exciting attraction. So you can see why people would show up to see this guy, why he was put in a prestigious match. But he did get an interesting uh, rematch on March 10th, 1884. Again, in New York City, Matsuda met Edwin Beebe again in the strangest of matches, a sumo rules match or Japanese wrestling match as wow. the press called it. And this time Matsuda beat the legendary catch wrestler in four straight falls. I guess they were doing a four out of seven. And uh, wow. Beebe, despite not knowing probably the first thing about the rules, took the challenge. He just wasn't up to the task, no matter how good he was at catch. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, kudos to Bibi for taking that match. To take a, a competition that is outside of your professional wheelhouse, you see how rare that is today with the crossover matchups between MMA and boxing. How often does somebody venture into the place that's not their wheelhouse? And two, I would love to know how they incorporated sumo rules. Was it just get the man outside of, outside of the perimeter? Did they have gear that was specifically worn to be grabbed and utilized like, like the... the the leg kimono of sumo or the gi? This is my guess. It's all conjecture. I yeah. have no knowledge one way or the other. I assume because this is back in the day when they weren't in a ring, they were on a platform, usually covered with carpet. So I feel it was probably he just got had to get nudged off the platform instead of out of a circle as yeah. most sumo rules uh, dictate. So it was kind of a weird bastardization. Yeah, but totally. still, he was willing to do it and it did make Matsuda look good in the end. Well, that is fantastic. It's like a, a, a version of King of the Hill, man. That's awesome. And like most big wrestlers of the time, Sorokichi traveled extensively on the carnival and theater circuit. As late as 1888, there are newspaper advertisements of him doing open challenges with promoters promising $50 to any man who can throw Matsuda. This is a man who was small. Uh, he was foreign. Uh, you did not have many Americans who probably thought they could lose to a foreigner no matter what the circumstances are. So you can see a lot of small town dingbats wanting to uh, take a uh, poke at this diminutive Asian man and then ending up on their ass no matter how mediocre he was at catch wrestling or you know, still like developing his sumo skills. This is a guy who, no matter how you slice it, was still tougher than 95% of the people walking around. 
he was just out of his wheelhouse a lot of the time with catch wrestling. It's like, for example, I love boxing. I train boxing three, four times a week. If you put me in the ring with even a mediocre amateur boxer, I'm gonna get my ass kicked because there are levels to this. No matter how hard you work, there's always gonna be somebody better than you. And if you don't know how lousy you are, everyone's gonna be better than you. Yeah, and there are so many layers to how how rigged that game even is, that premise. The poor foolish marks lining up around the corner for a chance to take down the short Asian man. They don't understand the leverage that goes into taking someone down. The shorter and lower center of gravity you are, he was tailor-made to be a nightmare to take down. And then when you factor in that the average, you're talking about farm boys, you're talking about people that probably half of them, maybe on third of them only know, don't know how to read. These are not educated uh, martial artists or people that are trained in combat sports at all. And they are just getting shucked like oysters. And that's a beautiful work, man. Yeah, because these are guys most likely who did do some sort of local folk wrestling, but most folk wrestling in the States was more based on collar and elbow at best, or more of that like German or Scottish or Flemish style of folk wrestling where it's all about you know, getting in a neutral position with a back grip and trying to break the grip. It's not about submission. It's not about lower body takedowns and trips. So this guy had a lot in his wheelhouse and he worked very hard because keep in mind, he didn't come to the United States to try to be a big star in the United States. He wanted to master and fully understand professional wrestling as it was done in America in the 1880s. So he could take that back to Japan and introduce it to his native culture thinking it would catch on there. So he had a very, very defined plan for what he was doing here. Yeah, and it, 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 it's interesting because that, that is the outline of a martial artist, right? He didn't come here to be a star. He came here to master the art, to learn the art from the source, and then to take it home and share it with his people. And that is the story of the martial artist that's as old as the hills. And it, it's really fitting that that is his true narrative the first Japanese pro wrestler in America's true life narrative. And he did fairly well for himself despite his limited training in that sport. For example, March 24th, 1884, he beat Captain James C. Daly in New York in a half catch, half Japanese rules match, winning the pin in the first fall, but seemingly not understanding the rules entirely and kept trying to nudge Daly off the stage after pinning him, leading to a fair amount of outrage from the crowd. The New York Journal praised Matsuda as a newcomer with enormous potential in the sport. And then on April 8th, 1884 in Cleveland, in front of 4,000 people. Keep in mind how big these crowds were back there. Yeah. There wasn't television, there wasn't the internet. You didn't stay home to watch Simpsons. Everything was an event. Everything was something came to town and you had to go see it because nothing else would happen for possibly another month. And he took on Duncan Ross, a highly accomplished catch wrestler in a three out of five falls match with mixed rules again. The first and third would be catch, the second and fourth Japanese sumo rules, and the fifth would be a coin toss deciding if needed. The match took place on a raised platform, and Ross won the catch rules rounds, while Matsuda won the sumo rounds, not a surprise. Unfortunately, there seems to be plenty of animosity between the two men. Both were exhausted, and Matsuda was in no shape to come out for the fifth fall, and Ross was declared the winner by forfeit. Matsuda reportedly gave up 50 pounds to Ross in that match, 
which is enormous, especially with that many falls. Yeah, how many weight classes are we talking? That could be as many as four or five weight classes in, in MMA, right? 50 pounds. Like if you think about a middleweight, like a, like a solid middleweight, uh, cut, you know, even if they're not cutting weight, that's 185 pounds. Yeah. And the cutoff for heavyweight is 225. So this could almost be an ex like if it was grappling totally. rules or an MMA rules, this would be like an Anderson Silva fighting a Brock Lesnar. It is a big advantage. And the fact that he made it even that far, because for those of you who have never wrestled or done jujitsu or even, you know, boxed where you're doing a lot of clinch work, you have no idea how much it sucks to have to carry around and push against a man who outweighs you by 50 pounds. Yeah, bottom line, superior physics at the point of attack make your same level of skill more effective. When you're fighting an opponent who's 50 pounds larger than you, you have to have basically 50 pounds worth of additional skill and application to be able to beat this person. And the fact that he was able to go, I mean, like you were making that, that weight class comparison, 55ers is lightweight, 205 is light heavy. That's pretty much every weight class in the entire UFC back in the day in between. You are talking about a gargantuan weight difference. And to go the distance, to go the four to where it's basically overtime at that point, that, that speaks to his incredible ability to dictate his style. He won his matches against an, uh, a superior, larger opponent, and it, it showed that he really was legit, man. Another thing you have to keep in mind for things like this, this wasn't... A, there weren't rounds. It wasn't like a five minute round or a three minute round. This was just a fall. You right? go yeah. to a fall or a submission or in sumo rules, a nudge off the uh, platform or out of the circle. You go until you win or you lose. That could be five minutes. That could be an hour. Uh, during this era, there are so many matches that ended indecisively because people were exhausted or the landlord literally said, everybody leave, it's 1 a.m., I'm turning off the lights. These were very difficult fights to win. It makes me think of like the old UFC philosophy Hoist Gracie would say where, you know, if I drop you in the water and you can see the island two miles away, you know you can swim that far. If I drop you in the ocean and you don't see any land and you just have to swim until you find something, that's a different story. And yeah. that's the story you would see back in these days. Yeah, it was a different world. There were no judges. There were no rounds. There was no education. Even in, in, in oftentimes we've talked about on this show where the referees weren't even educated in what they were looking at with, with techniques, with takedowns, with submissions. And it was really hard to score, score a decisive victory, especially when you're talking. You're basically saying that they had to have five fights, five complete fights. Each fall means that the fight is over and you are starting the fight again from scratch. And it is a war of attrition to, and to go that long with a guy who has that big of a size advantage is just, it's absurd and I tip my cap. And it didn't get any easier for him because on July 18th, 1884, was his first meeting with the solid man, William Muldoon. Dun, dun, dun. It was a rather one-sided match with details hard to come by, but for the much smaller Japanese wrestler, it's one hell of an accomplishment to even get a match against Muldoon at the height of his fame and title run. For Muldoon, it was an accomplishment because the match was split Greco-Roman and Japanese rules, and he didn't give up a single fall with a style he had no experience with. 
I saw the advert listing the split rules in uh, the July 10th, 1884 edition of The Sun. So this is a man who competed in a grappling rule set he had never dealt with before, but he had the size, the athleticism, and just the good, you know, the, the good strategic brain to outwork somebody in their own rules. Even though he did have a considerable size and strength advantage, it still is a significant uh, accomplishment. Well, William Muldoon was definitely the goat of his era, and he was able to get in there, Matsuda, Surakichi Matsuda was able to get in there and get a matchup with the champ, with the goat, and, and actually the fact that he was willing, I, I can see why Matsuda was a, uh, attractive opponent for Muldoon because at this point in his career he was looking for those stipulation matches he was looking for those additional ways to generate an audience because he had he had ran through the entire division he had ran through just about every competitor and, and they were looking for those those yeah, sort of hybrid matches and this yeah, operated a new challenge yeah because also it's not we don't have like source material saying this but just as a promoter and a historian i kind of feel that being able to build somebody they probably build him as like the japanese champion or something like totally. that because everybody was billed as champions even if they weren't just trying to make it sound more meaningful more exotic you could say this guy's the champion of california when they're in new york you could say this guy was the champion of new york when they're in california you can say this guy was the champion of france even though he is german you can do so many crazy things back in these days because there was no way to verify it but making it exotic always sells tickets yeah especially when you're a dominant champion looking for a new angle and a new new thing to push to get a new story and a new payday when you've when you've beat every one of your contemporaries at that point you're looking for something else to draw the people in and this matchup was was gold and up next one of my favorite things i i, I loved reading this article when i found this one on august 8th 1884 the brooklyn eagle talked about this match or quotations match the night before at the brooklyn theater matsuda defeated the strong woman miss lulu in an exhibition match as she was described the piney and pork fed female samson from georgia so he had an intergender wrestling match in a burlesque theater in the 1800s and he won and celebrated uh greatly uh they they had quotes from him that i don't want to go into because they of course made him sound like uh you know a, a, a the, the stereotype you're thinking but he you know he, he he acted like it was his wrestlemania moment whether this was a work whether this was a legit shoot match i don't care i think it's friggin' awesome that it happened that somebody put together a burlesque carnival strong woman against a japanese wrestler in a theater in new york city holy shit that's awesome Yes, obviously, intergender matchups is what's killing the business today. It's never the unprecedented. It's the only reason that things aren't moving these days. Jim Cornette would have a conniption if he heard this shit. That's hilarious. I bet he totally Andy Kaufman it up, too, and played it up. Because the bottom line is, as a Japanese man in America at this time, regardless of how good of a person, he could be Mr. Miyagi, he's going to be billed as the heel. Yeah, it is a situation where xenophobia and nationalism while not necessarily on par with how it became in the 20th century is always going to play a part in things so whether it's a hippodrome or they're setting up the betting against the little asian man 
or if it's a situation where it is a shoot match and everybody's coming to bet on the, uh, the American to uh, take care of business, that is going to play a part in things. And again, intergender matches in this era were uncommon but not unheard of. There was a long circus tradition of having the strong woman who would wrestle the, uh, the, the local town goof well before Mildred Burke was doing it during uh, the, the Depression. You would have the occasional female boxer like uh, May June in London uh, punching out the, uh, the, the local men because she was a giantess. It's an attraction. It's a freak show. It's something you have to see to believe. And gosh darn it, that's pro wrestling at its finest. Yes, and I love that he was playing it up and playing the role. He probably he probably enjoyed that a little bit because it it being a heel. If you if you if you're a fan of pro wrestling and you've never been inside the business, let me tell you something. Being a heel is fucking cathartic, and I'm sure he got to get a little bit of that out towards all this anti-Japanese sentiment that he had been just saturated in in America. And it probably felt good to be a dick to all these people that have been assholes to him. And his personal feelings on that, there was a big cultural divide. So I really can't say one way or the other how he felt about a lot of things, whether he just liked the showbiz attention, sure. whether he leaned into the heelness, whether he didn't understand things because of the, uh, of the language barrier. Who can say? Because again, these are people who didn't sit down and do shoot interviews, so their internal lives are a bit of a mystery. But some of his personal life is not, because in February 1885, we have records of him marrying Ella B. Lodge of Philadelphia. The marriage was clearly not good, and she was on record complaining that Matsuda and his friends squandered her inheritance and threatened to beat her up when she complained. She also stated that she had to put up with his Japanese girlfriend living in their home. However, she was seen attending his matches for years to come. He was at the height of his earning power, and she had inherited property, but they both spent money as fast as it came in, and it led to a very toxic relationship. So we do have somebody coming from Japan in the 1800s where, if you think America was sexist at that time and how powerless and uh, you know the lesser partner a woman was in a, in a marriage, think about how it came from a very patriarchal society like Japan. But it just seems from what is on record. She wasn't exactly a great person herself, so it was just two awful people in an awful relationship with a lot of money to burn. Yeah, and I think it's also of note that, for one, the fact that there's more of a record of his personal faux pas and sort of his dirty laundry and his secrets from his private life and his failed marriage than there is on his you know, journey as a professional wrestler, I think it speaks volumes because a guy like that, regardless, win, lose, or draw, he's not going to get a bunch of good press back then. So I'm sure any story is going to be slanted negative regardless, especially if there's smoke and there's a little fire there, you know? You're absolutely right because this is somebody who, through their pure exotic status as the first Japanese wrestler in this era, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Anglo-Saxon white men in the business, he was noticed. He was in the press. Clearly, they're going to, uh, you know, follow through on his personal laundry just like they would on anyone. The tabloids then are just as bad as they are today. It's nothing new. Of course, they would kind of uh, throw the dirt out there when dirt was available. But his career continued to flourish. 
on April 17, 1885, he took on Carl Abs at Turn Hall, New York City. The two men met in a series of matches throughout the first half of 1885, including this April clash at Turn Hall that ended in a 90-minute match with Abs declared the winner, despite it breaking into a fist fight halfway through the match, or as the newspaper put it, despite it turning into, despite some boxing midway through the grappling. So these guys got so frustrated, they just started throwing hands mid-wrestling match. They were both, from the description, absolutely beat to shit, ripped up elbows, bleeding, but they went 90 goddamn minutes, Oof. which is an insanely long grappling match. It's an insanely long anything to do athletically for that long without much of a breather, even though they did have the, the break between rounds. And they continue to have matches together in the series. They had one in June where a riot nearly broke out when Matsuda couldn't continue due to an injury. It was a throw from abs. He landed. Uh, he hurt his arm. He couldn't come out for the third fall. People were rushing the stage and had to be held back. Absolute madness. You cannot uh, get heat like that these days. Yeah, there's definitely no examples of any marks hitting the stage and promoters and the boys in the ring having to take care of a little business to get them out of there. This is true. And even if you're thinking of things like at GCW recently when uh, Gardoto beat uh, Gage for the title and people were throwing yeah. trash into the ring and booing and going crazy. Triple O. <coughs> They, these are matches where it's just there's people are being a little wild. It's not people rushing the stage trying to kill somebody because they're so mad about how it turned out. And that's how his series with abs was. Whether those were shoots or whether they were works, the emotions were so hot from the audience, from the story told or the natural outcome of the matches that people were literally willing to tear a man limb from limb due to their outrage at the uh, at how it turned out. And Abs is a guy we really haven't talked about. I don't even know if we've mentioned him before, but he is another big star of this era. He was a fantastic German circus wrestler and strongman who came to the US to seek prestigious wins in a country where wrestling was taken slightly more seriously. Uh, he garnered wins over Matsuda, obviously, Edwin Beebe, Tom Cannon, and even got a win later on over William Muldoon. I bet he had a capital mustache. Oh, if you look up Carl Abs, you will see some fantastic circus uh, facial hair. Yeah, that is, that is definitely a safe bet. And speaking of William Muldoon, on May 8th, 1885, he had another big match with William Muldoon. This is the one we talked about, I think, in our first episode, where Muldoon made a wager for $100 that he could throw Matsuda five times in an hour. This is when Muldoon was having that being champion too long syndrome. Totally. Where anybody who's on top for too long sometimes has trouble moving tickets, being motivated, drawing an audience because they have just been dominating to the point where no one's expecting anything different. Usually a champion will hit a brick wall. Usually you'll have a Tyson hit Buster Douglas. You'll have George St. Pierre hit Matt Sarah. But sometimes it goes beyond the point of being interesting. That's why you would even see like Anderson Silva halfway through his title reign. He was fighting jujitsu goofballs and he had just no interest in even being there and it putting on terrible matches that pissed everybody off. Because at a certain point, no one can be so sharp that they can just straight beat everyone for 10 years and still care about what they're doing without going insane. Yeah, a uh, fed lion makes for a poor hunter. And Superman is boring. 
if you know that the babyface is going to win at the end of the at the program, then eventually that becomes repetitive. And that's what we had here with the solid man. He had cleared out all of his contemporaries and he was having to rely on, you know, alternative gimmicks to get the fans in the door, whether that was mixed rules matches, multiple fall matches, which were much more common back then. He and like like we were saying, he saw an opportunity to create a program with a different opponent, an opponent that offered a unique um, tangible merit as a draw. He was a draw, man. The people, the people cared. The, the fact that they're rioting over him, he was over, they cared, and, and Muldoon saw the chance to get a big payday, and I don't blame him, man. Because very seldom, if ever at this point, would you see a Japanese man on a stage like this. And yeah. A, you know, again, bringing up just the racism of the period, for everybody who has seen Django Unchained, the Tarantino movie, there's a scene where Jamie Foxx is, you know, Django is riding his horse into town and the t white townsfolk are losing their fucking minds because there's a black man riding a horse. This wasn't casual racism. This wasn't people hiding behind Twitter handles. This was an era where it was like, it was insane to see anybody other than a white man doing white man business. So there was a huge draw, even in the most tolerant of areas. That's why I feel like you don't see too many Matsuda matches, if any, anywhere near uh, former Confederate states, probably yeah. for safety, because it's insane to see a Japanese man, an invading foreigner standing up against our our white American champ. But you know what? As we learned throughout wrestling history, prejudices sell tickets. And America is unfortunately has a long history of prejudice, whether we want to admit it or not. And that translated into this man being a draw against top wrestlers, not just because he belonged there athletically, but because again, it was a circus sideshow, even if it was a legitimate match. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it a hundred years after this with the Iron Sheik. It's a, it's a tale as old as the hills. It's tribalism. It's our team versus your team, our side versus your side. And it, that's a really easy sell in the archetypal elemental story that is pro wrestling, good versus evil. That's a really palate, that's baby food for that audience. Here's the American hero versus the foreign menace. Because it goes beyond good versus evil, it becomes us versus uh, them. Exactly. A great personal example is one time, Lucha Libre and Laughs, my show, we did a uh, show at a local uh, shopping center uh, that I won't name, and you know, former WWE star Arya Davari was on it well before his WWE run. He comes out and first generation, or you know, he was, his parents were Iranian immigrants. He cuts a promo in Farsi and then says, let me translate that for you stupid Americans. My name is Sheikh Arya Davari, and I'm from the, I'm the greatest wrestler from the greatest wrestling country, Iran. And the crowd just naturally boos. Uh, his opponent, Caleb Crush, comes out. They start chanting USA. They have a great match that has an emotional core to it. Whether that's healthy or not, it is what it is, and it gets attention, it gets energy, it gets emotion involved. Sure enough, as soon as we got off the, uh, got out of the ring, the property manager grabbed me and dragged me uh, to yell at me about, uh, you know, all this uh, awful uh, racism we were promoting. Even though it's like, no, no, he's, he's actually uh, that color, and that's a real language. I don't know what you're freaking out about, but I digress. Whether it was the 1880s, the 1980s, or today inclusive us versus them, good versus evil. These are the stories that move tickets. That's why babyface versus babyface matches, be them legitimate shoot fights in boxing or MMA or WWE, AEW. When you have two babyfaces, 
there's no emotion, there's no heat. It's like when they had John Cena versus The Rock part two, it was no matter how you positioned it, they were both baby faces, no matter how they tried to book it otherwise. And it didn't have the hard to the core of your soul, mythology, loving heat that CM Punk versus The Undertaker had, you know, two matches beforehand. Yeah, totally. You have to have those emotions. Again, sometimes it's not healthy, but it is what it is. It's, it's tugging at the strings that elicit emotional manipulation from an audience. And think of the audience. We're talking about the 1890s. Racism is rampant. You have the two ingredients that you need. There's two things that draw money in the fight game, whether it's pro wrestling or the fight game. You have your proxy. You have your guy, your Stone Cold Steve Austin, where you say, that's my guy. And when he kicks ass, I am kicking ass vicariously through that guy. Or you have the guy that you pay money to see him get his ass kicked, the Conor McGregor's. Those guys are great draws. And when you combine the two like they did here, you're going to get a fantastic crowd response out of that and make a big, big draw and a big payday. Because we don't have like the hardcore audience reaction because it just wasn't covered during this. But one way we do know that this was indeed a shoot and not a work is Muldoon failed to throw Matsuda five times in an hour. And while he did toss around his much smaller opponent at will, he was only able to pin him once, thus admitting defeat and forfeiting the $100, which let's, let's face it, in 1885, was a significant chunk of change. Yeah, and, and you like the way that this, the strategy behind it, right? He didn't lose, he just didn't win by enough of a margin that it counted as a victory for, for the champ. So he lost without really losing, but yeah, you definitely know the competition was on the up and up because Maldon was not looking to give away any money. Yeah, and these are the type of matches we discussed a lot during our early episodes about Muldoon and Evan Strangler-Lewis, where you can do these matches where it's, if I can't throw you five times in an hour, you win a prize. Or if you can last 10 minutes with me, you win this. And that comes out of the tradition of the circus challenge. It makes it exciting. But as we know, when two trained fighters are involved and not just some aggressive small town goofball, a trained guy who knows he's out of his element can fight defensively. Yeah, he totally. has enough because it doesn't take it, it takes a different level of skill to win than it does to not lose. To not lose. Yeah, exactly. Especially when the rule set is predicated on not losing. Matsuda didn't have to slam him. He just had to not get slammed five times. And when you're talking about all of the advantages he has in the, the leverage and dynamics of the takedown game, that's a that's a, uh, you know, forgive the unintentional pun. That's a very tall order for Maldun to pull off. Oh, and indeed. And I, I commend them both for for doing this yeah. type of thing because clearly if it, you know Muldoon, he needs to uh, keep his career going, he is the champ. And if you fail to throw a smaller foreign opponent at yeah, this juncture, right? it does ding your reputation. You didn't Bad lose, look. you know, you didn't lose, so it's a whole different thing. I don't think he went in there even considering that he would somehow lose this, but it is a risk to your reputation to not win. Meanwhile, somebody like Matsuda literally has nothing to lose. He's not staking any money. He's not the top of the world. He's going to get bookings and matches no matter what because he is a talented freak show opponent for the American talent to, uh, to take on in those type of matches. And 
He also was an absolute athletic dynamo because he goes for these long matches like in December 31st, 1886, a draw versus Charles Moth. Moth is another kind of one of those background guys you hear popping up in these stories. And Moth won the first round under Greco-Roman rules. The second round was catch, which went on for three hours Ugh. without resolution before being declared a draw. Think about the worst day you have at work, the most boring day where you're watching the clock and it's you feel like an hour has gone by, but it's been five minutes. Think about just that type of emotional stress waiting for three hours to go by, like, like being a kid waiting for, for, for Christmas to come or your birthday party to come. And picture that as a high-paced, athletic, catch-as-catch-can wrestling match where you could get submitted or pinned a thousand ways, most likely against a bigger man, and going three hours without a breather. And that's not even the finish. That's, the, that's just the second fall. He's, he's got to go deeper than that. Imagine how you feel at the end of that three-hour fall, and now you got to go again. It's preposterous. Yeah, because think about this. For those of you who, who grapple professionally, you understand this. For those of you who you know, have, do, do jiu-jitsu twice a week, trying to stay in shape or wrestled in high school, you understand how exhausting 90 seconds can be, let alone 90 minutes, let alone double that for a three-hour run. For those of you who have never even grappled before, think about how winded you get going up a flight of stairs because the escalator is, isn't working. Now picture that with somebody chasing you for three hours. Yeah, and also keep in mind that you don't know that three hours is the limit. You are gonna go until you get to how, like you said earlier about swimming in the ocean, right? You don't know that the limit is three hours. It could have been longer than three hours. So your the mentality of going until the job is done and then reloading and going again for the next fall, that is just, that is an era of, of mental toughness that is out of the game today that we don't have to worry about. And it's really one of the most remarkable things about what these guys did back then. Yeah, it feels less like athletic competition and more like the like Navy SEAL training camp where you just go for days on end until you quit or you make it. Because I can't say that I wouldn't uh, just give my shoulders up in a th after three hours. I can't say that. I, I, I can't imagine grappling a single match for three goddamn hours without being like, you know, I've had about enough of this, here's my arm. Yeah, I wanna know who the hell came up with time limits, cause God bless that guy. And the other bananas thing, absolutely crazy thing to think of that, I don't wanna use the word prodigy, cause he did have a grappling background to begin with, but we are now sitting at the end of 1886. He came to America in 1883, and not only was able to get big bookings based on his exotic personage, his uh, national heritage, his nationality, being a Japanese wrestler. He was able to maybe not win, but hold his own against the best of the best, despite being new to the sport, new to the rules, new to some of the skills, and also giving up a lot of weight. And if you think what we have talked about so far is crazy, we are about to get into his matches against Evan Strangler Lewis and where it went from there. But we're gonna have to put a pin in this story because we've already talked a lot today. We're gonna come back next time for Sorokichi Mitsuda part two, where shit just gets even wilder, even weirder, if that's even possible. So make sure you like us on Facebook. 
follow us on Twitter. Instagram, I like to post uh, clippings from the old articles that I find that are uh, absolutely batshit crazy sometimes. We love that you're following us on this journey. We love that you're listening. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossard. Good night, everybody. We'll be back next time. That was a proper tease and leave them for the finish. Come back wanting more, nerds. We'll see you next time. Cut print martini.